What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Now, Michael, it really felt like this week the NBA started to mobilize. We got some beefcake photos of Zion Williamson flexing in the workout room. We got short video clips of LeBron James shooting jumpers at the Lakers practice facility. We saw various NBA people take to Zoom calls uh, in advance of potentially traveling to Orlando for the restart uh, next week. And then on top of all of that, Michael, we got to rev back up a very important conversation. That's right. The title chase conversation. And Michael, I'm not sure if every single person in the NBA has heard your asterisk take, but it sure (laughs) seems like it. I want to start with this email real quick from Nick in Switzerland. And he says, I really like your podcast and I listen to every single one of them, but I need to call you out on one thing. I don't like that you guys are always talking about this year's title, not counting or having an asterisk next, next to it. Of course, it's something we've never seen before and hopefully we'll never see again, but it's the same for all teams and all players. Adding to this, the playoffs will be played as always with best of seven series, and the team that's going to win it all has to win those 16 playoff games to get the rings. I think in the end, it doesn't matter that much to the players because they're competitors, even if they're in Disney World, the team that wins it will deserve it. Now, Michael, I know that you've been a very, very pro-asterisk voice uh, in the NBA community, and I hate to say it, but the powers that be, the forces are aligning among the contending teams against you and with our buddy Nick from Switzerland. I'm going to give you a quick rundown. Giannis Atenecupo, reigning MVP, leader of the Milwaukee Bucks on Wednesday, said, this is going to be the toughest championship you could ever win the circumstances are really, really tough right now. Whoever wants it more will be able to go out there and take it. Los Angeles Clippers coach Doc Rivers recounting a conversation with Adam Silver. The NBA commissioner says the team that wins this will deserve a gold star, not an asterisk, Michael. Whoever <laughs> comes out of this, it's going to come down to mental toughness. There's going to be so many things that are thrown at us that we don't even know yet. And finally... Lakers coach Frank Vogel says, our team has been through a lot this year. We've endured and come out strong each time we faced adversity. If we're able to come through all of this and achieve the ultimate prize, I think it deserves a quote-unquote harder-than-ordinary asterisk if you're going to put any asterisk on it. I don't think the circumstance weakens a title at all. So, Michael, what do you have to say for yourself? Everybody is against you. Are you still standing firm on the asterisk talk? Well, first of all, when you say that there's an asterisk, it's not necessarily saying that something is more difficult or less difficult. It's just different and should be separate from every single other competition that's taken place in the past. So by definition, of course, there's an asterisk. I also want to say, you know, Like, what do you expect any of these people to actually say they're competing for the title? Like, are they going to come in and be like, yeah, we're, you know, we're doing this for nothing. We're here to collect a paycheck. Like, I, I, of course, they're going to say that this is the highest peak of competition and this is the most difficult thing. And they're hyping it up because it's a part of their job and promoting the game is part of what they need to do but like ask frank vogel what he thinks if ad tests positive for covid right before game five in a tied second round series against the rockets or ask Giannis if he feels the same way after brooke lopez tests positive halfway through the eastern conference finals i mean even right now there is a blatant competitive disadvantage and that not every team is operating with the same runway you have The Denver Nuggets, they just had their practice facility shut down because several staff members tested positive. Uh, There's also no home court, which we've discussed many times. And like it or not, it makes this situation unusual. And therefore, it deserves an asterisk. I don't even know why this is like a controversial take, Ben. Well, it's a controversial take because it's hilarious to watch everyone in the NBA screaming at you. Um, I'm I'm kind of kidding. I mean, you're not the only person who's talked about the asterisk. Of course, there's been others who've raised it. I certainly think that your your point on differentiating between what exactly do we mean by an asterisk is important. Um, 
it's not you're not necessarily saying that the winner would be invalidated are you you're just saying that we have to treat the winner differently because the entire circumstances with the long layoff and the competitive disadvantage the uneven playing field that you're describing and everything else just warrants an extra mention right an idea that uh, you know, this one is uh, extraordinary compared to every other one right. that's happened before. Is that sort of where you're coming down? Yeah, I mean, I, I barely connect what is about to take place with what already took place from October to March. Like, I think you, when you t- look at the layoff, the four-plus-month layoff or whatever it is that is longer than an average off-season, like, we, we talked about this in the last episode. Like, teams change. Chemistry is affected by the, the layoff. We don't know who's going to be out of shape. We don't know who's going to come down with COVID once they're inside the bubble. Like, I mean, these are all variables that are just like they differentiate what is about to happen from every single postseason in NBA history. I I just like it might be more difficult, but it's just it's different. It deserves an asterisk. It'll never be historically remembered as all the other championships are. It's it's like on steroids, uh, the 99 season with the lockout, a little bit less to, to a lesser degree, but the 2011 season with the lockout shortened season and, and just how that affected the run up to the, the to the championship, but like it, those things matter, and we remember those seasons and those championships. And the Spurs, I don't think, in a lot of people's eyes, get the credit for that '99 title because the season was only 50 games long, and some of the teams were, you know, the, the older teams were at a clear disadvantage running through the the regular season. I mean, th- these are just factors that we have to account for when we're talking historically about who wins the championship and how important it is. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be remembered as the Orlando title, the Disney title right it's gonna just that's gonna be how everyone references it there there's really no way around that I'm curious though Michael you know it's one of these like speech and debate things can you even if you disagree with the messages maybe coming out from these guys can you at least respect their argumentation right like imagine the challenge that these teams are facing where you had five or six months of great chemistry or you were building some momentum in March uh, or you've got one of the best three players on the planet, so you feel like you're always going to be in that title chase. Mm-hmm. Trying to rally the troops during a pandemic where some guys are just saying, I'm not going to participate because either I don't feel it's safe or you know for family reasons, um, while you're trying to you know recapture uh, you know lightning in a bottle, whatever you want to call it, all these months later, that's a significant leadership challenge, not only for the coaches or the GMs, uh, maybe who we mentioned earlier, but also for the star players. I mean, that is a real mental test. And it's also a test of chemistry, camaraderie, you know, interpersonal relationships, and everything else. I mean, even if you're going down there as one of the favorites, you can't just assume you're going to, you know, pick back up where you left off on any of this stuff. So do you can you at least respect where these guys are coming from, Michael, in terms of, you know, trying to, I would say, reframe this Orlando experiment in a more positive or a more uh, competition-oriented light to kind of give their players something to rally around, to play for? Or do these arguments Mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, fall on deaf ears? You're like, okay, yeah, gold star. Sounds great, guys. Good luck with the gold star. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I'm half and half on it, to be honest. Like, I I don't want to constantly come across as a wet blanket on the the issue because, like, I – love the NBA so much and like it's saying that the NBA should not happen is like so against my personal ethos <laughs> like it's it's very weird to take that stance and to 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 say that you know uh, for for Frank Vogel to use the word adversity when talking about playing basketball during a, a pandemic that is like increasingly dangerous in this country where cases new cases are setting records every single day like that's just objectively tone deaf but i also understand that these are the cards that he has dealt as the head coach of that team like and he needs to say what he needs to say i don't know if he necessarily believes those things but it's just a really awkward and uncomfortable position for all these guys to be in and they have to make the most of it. And so from that perspective, I do sympathize with them. But like at the end of the day, it is a very unusual, uh, dangerous scenario down there. And like, again, like I, I, 
I just don't even think it should be happening, but it is going to. So we have to kind of just assess uh, and analyze it as it goes along. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I hate to be the guy who's like, sports are a prism of life, you know? (laughs) Um, But at that same time, I think we can all agree making the best of a bad situation is really important in our daily lives, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of things that we don't control. And this is a great reminder that you can be a $100 million basketball player. You could be a basketball coach for 25 years in the NBA and win a title. I mean, you could be a very, very high profile person within your field. You know, one of the five best people at what you do in the entire world. And when it comes down to it, uh, you know, the rules are coming up from above you and you've either got to go along with them or you've got to check out, right? And I think in this case, you're seeing all the major figures within the NBA, at least the superstar level players, kind of rallying around the idea that they have to do this, that they almost feel like it's an obligation. I, I believe Doc Rivers was comparing it to a deployment, you know? It's like, we're all going down to Orlando for three months um, and, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We've got to be ready to adapt. Um, you know, it's just a tricky spot. And, and so when you're in that situation of trying to make the best out of it, you know, as leaders, I mean, your teammates, uh, your other organizational employees are going to follow you. You have to strike the right message. I thought for all three of these organizations to kind of come out the gate like they did and try to refocus and say, hey, look, you know, this title does matter. This title is something that we really have wanted and we want to kind of try to finish the job uh, and make everybody realize that there's going to be a million distractions, a million serious situations between now and whenever a champion uh, possibly gets crowned. But that that's sort of why they're doing it. That's the motivating factor behind it. I think that's really important because, you know, Michael, we've looked at this comeback from every angle since March, right? And the one that's always mattered to me, like the strongest motivation, I understand they're going to focus on television revenue and everything else. The strongest Mm -hmm. factor to me personally, as somebody who cares about the sport, like I know you do, is this idea that there's been a a champion crowned every year since 1947. Like that is a crazy amount of history that's just sort of like weighing. And if you have that spot uh, empty in the record book, that's the only thing that's worse than having an asterisk in the record book to me, right? So... Um, that should be what drives these guys. And I'm glad that that's how they feel, you know, because we understand there's players who have serious mixed feelings, right? Do I want to play? Do I not want to play? And if you've got leadership personalities within the league who had those same uh, mixed feelings or were expressing them, I think that this entire, uh, you know, field trip or whatever you want to call it would be undertaken <laughs> just with a, a different mentality, mm-hmm. right? It, it would be harder to kind of get buy-in um, so I guess that's where I come down. I guess I, I'm giving them a little bit of salute for how forceful they were in um, in refocusing their efforts. Yeah, and it is really good of you to kind of point out that all these teams are legitimate championship contenders. They all believe that they are positioned to win it all. And, uh, you know, when the season was suspended, they were in that position. But then you also have someone like uh, Brad Beal, who comes out and basically says, even though he's 100% healthy, that he doesn't even know if he wants to go down because of, uh, for social justice reasons. And that kind of puts it in a different perspective. And uh, it's kind of like, why is, I mean, this goes back to just the question of why there are, are there 22 teams and why are the Wizards even going down there? And if, so it's just it's it's a really uh, complicated thing, but I I, I do uh, I do agree generally with you saying that uh, just not crowning a champion at all would it, it would just like I mean it would be a total bummer <laughs> to be honest. Like I can simultaneously I feel like I can simultaneously think that the season should not continue, but also I would be like borderline heartbroken that it didn't, if that makes any sense. No, it makes total sense. I mean, there was a while there where I was waking up every single morning, Michael, wondering, is today the day we get the press release that the NBA has canceled, right? That the NBA has officially pulled the plug because we were just dragging and dragging. There was no movement. Their plans to try to restart weren't coming together. And that was something that I was absolutely dreading and in a total denial about, you know, I mean, it took me a couple of weeks mentally and emotionally to even wrap my mind around the shutdown. You know, I kept going to my television every night expecting games or like thinking, oh, is today a Lakers game day? And it's like, oh, yeah, wait, um, we have a pandemic. Right. Forgot about that. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't think we should underestimate 
the emotional hit that we would all feel if this winds up that you know they have to cancel they have to pull the plug i think that would be um you know a real body blow for a lot of people both within and outside the league um and i'm sure that that is weighing on uh, the decision makers as well i mean they want to see this thing through as best they possibly can all right michael um enough asterisk talk i think you made excellent points i think uh the contenders are on the record uh with their points what I wanted to do today is a little bit of a rapid-fire mailbag, Michael, because it's been a while since we took questions from the Open Floor Globe, and they email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com, and frankly, we just got to clear out our attic, Michael. We got questions about Vince Carter. We got questions about um, all sorts of different subjects, you know, COVID-related questions, NBA comeback-related questions, and so we're going to hop through as many of these as we can and I'm going to do my best uh, job to not be as long-winded as I sometimes can. And you're going to do a great job just being Michael Pina, and we're going to get through it. Here it comes, all right? <laughs> uh, Ross uh, writes in from Australia, and he's given us another follow-up on the Australian Football League and what they're dealing with uh, you know, in, in terms of COVID down there. And he says, I updated you guys on an AFL player who tested positive for the virus mid-round, and that postponed a game and sent massive red flags throughout the sport. We played another round of games without incident only to have more schedule issues due to cases spiking in my state of Victoria. This then led to a northern state bubble not allowing their team to travel to our state to play. Another state jumped in on that and now the schedule is all over the place. On top of that, my favorite player, Steel Sidebottom, broke protocol and now faces a multiple game suspension aside from the quarantine ban how does the nba plan to police uh player bubble movement and how will they hand down punishments michael uh take it away what do you think first of all uh steel side bottom like i just want to write his biography that that's like the greatest name for an athlete i've ever seen in my whole life yeah, he's got a promising second career. I won't tell you in what industry, but continue. <laughs> um, so, I mean, how does the NBA plan to police player bubble movement? I think we don't really know. I mean, it's kind of like an honor system. We know that teams will have to kind of self-report what their players do if they go out and break rules. Um So it's, yeah, it's basically an honor system. And when it comes down to handing out punishments, I mean, in that 133 or 30, I forget how many pages that rule book was, but in it, it says that some punishments might be uh, warnings, some might be uh, a little bit stricter than that, uh, all the way up to suspensions. But Like, I just think it's a very case-by-case basis, and I I don't know if if the NBA has any hard rules set in stone right now in terms of, you know, if Kawhi Leonard and Landry Shamit do the exact same, break the exact same rule, I I honestly don't think that they will be punished in the same way. I think that's fair to say. So it's a very subjective thing is my read on it. Yeah, so uh, just to underscore that, we we don't have laid out punishments that this gets you a $25,000 fine and this gets you a $100,000 fine. This gets you a five-game suspension. We don't know that yet, Ross. However, I do think this is a situation where Adam Silver is trying to have it both ways a little bit. One of his favorite talking points has been, oh, all the players in the bubble are free to leave. Well, we know that's not entirely true because if you leave, you're going to have to be subjected to an extended quarantine to get back in, right? So if you have to go away for an emergency, they're not going to prevent you from doing that, but you're not free to leave to go down to uh, you know, a sports bar and, and watch some Australian football league if you're in Orlando, right? I mean, you're going to be stuck there on the campus. You're, you're kind of prevented from going anywhere. So I do think that there's kind of mixed messaging here in terms of like what the freedom of movement is going to be like for players. I'm anticipating a very secure environment down there. There's been some discussion about multiple layers of law enforcement. Um, I would imagine that there's going to be at least some sort level of video surveillance because basically all Disney properties have that kind of baked into them, you know? I mean, any really nice hotel would. Um, so at that point, you know, if you've got a perimeter, if there's fences, if there's video surveillance, it's going to be trickier to, um, you know, to just like totally uh, burst the bubble. Um, and I would expect that if you're going to go to all of that expense, and, and there's been some reports that they're going to be spending at least uh, $1.5 million per day 
on this entire bubble environment, um, you're going to be highly invested in uh, prosecuting uh, violators, basically. You know, if someone breaks the rules, it's, you're not going to be able to look the other way. You're going to have to take it seriously. So um, I actually think especially early on, there will be few cases, if any, of people testing things. Now, as it gets into the second month, uh, does does cabin fever set in? I mean, I, I could definitely see that possible, but I expect everyone to go down there and be like super duper vigilant in part because the case counts in Orlando are just continuing to increase and, and kind of, um, you know, preventing people from having the motivation to want to go out. Who wants to go out in Orlando right now uh, if, if the case counts are that crazy? Uh, Michael, I did a story this week on the basketball tournament and they're, mm-hmm. they're a $1 million winner takes all event that's actually hosting a bubble right now in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, they have a hotel completely locked down, completely booked out for themselves. All the players are within uh, one hotel. There's security guards all over the lobby at every side entrance, signs everywhere telling the players where they can and cannot go. Um, I talked to a player who's inside the hotel who told me that he th- he thought it would be very, very difficult to sneak his girlfriend in. Like he was trying to come up with a plan, <laughs> but like couldn't really think how it would happen. And so remember, that's an event where, you know, their prize money is about a million dollars and the NBA's event is, a pr- you know, their quote unquote prize money is billions of dollars, right? So you can imagine if you're able to s- secure players to that degree, um, on that lower level stake, uh, the NBA is going to have a, a very, very secure environment. Yeah, for sure. I, I also think that the the opportunity cost here of suspending someone like LeBron James is greater than uh, letting him get away with a rule, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I I, I just think I'm I know I'm being really cynical here, but I, I don't I don't think that it's going to be across the board hard line punishments for these guys they, do, do you disagree well here's the thing they've talked about some exceptions here and there like if guys need to leave for um, you know like the birth of a child or a medical emergency or something like that so i could see some scenario where they have like an accelerated quarantine re-entry you know where it's like okay mm-hmm. if a superstar level player wants to like fly a helicopter to you know wherever and have a, a weekend on the beach i mean are they going to be able to craft some sort of loophole scenario for the player to do that I guess it's possible, but at the same time... Well, you know, real quick, Ben, like it, it says in the manual, if I'm not mistaken, that players who have excused absences only need to quarantine for four days, whereas players who leave the bubble and don't tell anybody and then come back if they're caught, they have to quarantine for at least 10 days, which I thought was pretty peculiar. Now, maybe I'm, I misread that or something, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that's what I saw. So that's just another kind of inconsistency and in the whole fundamental purpose of quarantining if you are outside the bubble. Right. And that's what I was kind of getting at with the accelerated reentry. I mean, it's tricky because I guess if it's an excused absence, maybe they're able to help you. Uh, travel in some particularly secure manner so they feel like you're going to be at a less lesser risk. I don't know exactly what their argument would be for the, the shorter time period there, but um, you know that would be, again, uh, something that I think they're going to have to kind of, not saying they're making it up as they go along, but I think there is an element to that uh, at play here. They want to get everybody down there first, make sure that they can you know safely run the games, and then if some incidents do come up along the way, just try to address them case by case. Um, as opposed to having this, you know, uh, list of rules and regulations that you're stuck to no matter what, and, and some crazy situation comes up that you've never thought of. Um, in terms of the superstar preferential treatment, though, I mean, there, there's always the, the, the temptation to say LeBron's going to be treated differently, but I think just about everybody else in the league is going to be held to a similar standard. The NBA has taken a very rigorous, thoughtful approach to how it's set up the testing procedure, how it's actually even created the bubble. You look at football and baseball, they have no concept of a bubble yet all these months later. And, you know, baseball is playing as like, yeah, we're just going to try to test our way out of it. That's never going to work, right? So I do think that the the NBA gets the science part better than these other leagues have shown that they do. And the science part demands that, you know, you limit all outside contact or the whole thing goes up in smoke. So, um, I'm a little bit less cynical than you are on that one. And I also think, by the way, that the NBA superstars have the most to lose 
by breaking the bubble because they have the most money on the line. They have the most legacy implications um, and everything else. All right, we are doing a terrible job of making this rapid fire. Next question. (laughs) Ryan says, first off, I'm just wondering if Ben is okay. He's been giving the Raptors a lot of love lately, especially in terms of which teams will perform well in the Disney bubble. Perhaps he's been stuck indoors too long. Ryan, you got me. Um, I've gone completely nuts here, um, you know, staying at home for the last four months. It's turned me into a Toronto termite. I do not know what's happening. Ryan continues. Um, I keep hearing the argument that testing positive for the coronavirus is just like an injury and injuries happen. Ryan says, well, no, this isn't Kevin Durant tearing his Achilles. Can you pass an Achilles tear onto your teammate? Can a hamstring pull spread through a locker room? Can a sprained ankle threaten the lives of a player and his family members or cause long-term health effects? I'm just wondering where you guys stand on this whole idea that contracting COVID is just like an injury argument. So Michael, I would just clarify, I think people are mostly saying it's just like an injury in terms of how the NBA would deal with the recovery timeline, right? Like players would just sort of be set aside for two weeks, similar to this idea of how much time you might miss with a really badly sprained ankle. And then you would be able to, you know, rejoin your team after that fact. I hope people aren't equating this virus to an injury. Um, What do you think? I think it. this is kind of tied to the whole uh, asterisk discussion that we had at the beginning of the episode. I mean, basketball injuries are caused by playing basketball, running, jumping, boxing out, setting screens, participating in a contact sport. COVID-19 has nothing to do with basketball. It's a deadly, contagious disease that's easily contractible even if you take uh, precautionary measures. So... I mean, as as the questioner, um, Ryan, said, like, basically, like, if a player tests positive because a Disney worker has it and sneezes all over their room or, or, or they contract it in some other natural way while not playing basketball, that's not even close to the same thing as spraining an ankle. And I don't think the two should equate in, in any sense. I'm with you 100%. It's a great point. Um, and I also think that just ethically, you know, when we're talking about the scope of what this thing could do and the fact that we don't know what it could do we should definitely be very careful to kind of treat this thing differently it's an interesting debate we actually got into in our newsroom a couple days ago at the post michael because uh the nets had a bunch of players test positive right and the natural inclination as a writer is to say well what are the key impacts of of that uh, positive test for example if three nets players all strain their hamstrings the first thing that we would do is say, wow, the Wizards have a better chance of making the playoffs now, right? And so I floated this to our editors and I was like, is a, in a headline like Nets without five players in Orlando opens you know, door for Wizards to make the playoffs? And they were all rightfully horrified, right? They're just saying like, dude, <laughs> yeah. like, don't connect those dots. What are you talking about? And I, and I stopped to think about it and it's you know, it, it feels terrible to write it, but ultimately the NBA is the one who bears a lot of the moral responsibility here because they're putting their tournament on, you know, during this pandemic. And if you do have, uh, you know, players from Team A not av- available to play, it absolutely necessarily helps players from Team B. And so I, I do think that we have to find the right way to talk about it. We don't want to connect those things as directly, especially, um, you know, when, when we're taking into consideration the long-term impacts of what this thing could do um, and just the uncertainty around it and the life and death stakes, frankly, too. So I think where we landed was stick to the facts, you know, try not to engage too much into the analysis of, um, you know, winners and losers uh, of the virus. And also, make sure that every story that we write or every time that we kind of talk about this disease, we're reminding people that it's killed more than 125,000 people right now. And there's been more than 2 million cases around the country. I mean, some of that stuff, it's obvious. I think we've all kind of internalized the the scope of uh, the pandemic. But at the same time, if you're just talking about some random players, uh, a positive test, and it's getting tweeted out without context on Twitter, uh, you, you do wind up uh, losing very important stakes and background uh, from that conversation. So, um, Ryan, I'm right there with you. It's not the same thing as an injury. The only way that we've sort of equated the two is sort of how the NBA will treat a player who does test positive in terms of being allowed to re-enter games, right? And, and there will be that two-week time frame uh, where he's got to be sidelined. 
So I do think on that one, we're kind of all on the same page here. All right, we've got a question from Stefan. He writes, a few episodes back, you were giving Nikola Jokic a hard time for not wearing a mask. It felt a little wrong to me, and I've been trying to figure out how to phrase my question. I sure don't want to make COVID-19 seem less important and worrisome than it is. I live in Denmark where masks are not a part of the guidelines and never have been. We have, after a couple of months of lockdown, the virus is under some control. Everything, including schools, are basically open. We have always had more focus on hand hygiene than masks here in Denmark. Uh, He continues, every basketball podcast I listen to are asking their audience to wear masks. I do believe it is necessary and helpful with the situation in the United States, but the world is bigger and there are places that have had success without masks. Um, And he points out that the number of uh, deaths per million uh, in Serbia, where Jokic was when he tested positive, uh, is much lower than it is in the United States. And he goes on to say, shouldn't celebrities be judged by the guidelines of where they live? Had Jokic been in the United States, he probably would be wearing a mask. Does he deserve to be cut a little slack from you guys? And he, he, he signs off, Michael, by saying, I don't want to come off as someone who's not taking the virus seriously. I think you just you guys need to approach this from a different perspective. Uh, maybe I just felt like you guys were also calling me out since I'm not wearing a mask in public, even though I'm following every other guideline my country has put forth. All right, Michael, I'm the one who was really calling Jokic out strong, but I'm going to let you go first here. Um, are you calling Stefan out? Should he be wearing a mask no matter what? Um, do we need to walk back any of the criticism of Jokic, or are you going to just force me to answer from my own words? No, I mean, you have to kind of factor in, like, the what are the travel restrictions in Denmark? Because if you're comparing this to the United States, which is obviously uh, much as a much higher population. It has people who are traveling within the country, people who have come in from other countries. Uh, I, I don't know what, what the, the travel restrictions are there in Denmark, and I don't know what the lockdown, uh, what the procedures were early on there that have kind of mitigated the threat. But I will say for Jokic, and for anyone else who was like knew that they were going to be coming to the United States or, or knew that they would be traveling imminently to not wear a mask uh, is just uh, irresponsible. And I don't think that wearing a mask is cultural. It's not bound or dictated by any nation's borders. Uh, it's a safety measure for every human being with a nose and a mouth. And so to not wear one is just to objectively increase risk for yourself and those around you. Um, So that's my kind of stance there. I think that you do deserve criticism if you are not wearing a mask, regardless of where you are. I thought Stefan raised some good points, but Stefan, I I apologize for nothing. I backed down not one inch. Um, (laughs) It wasn't just the lack of the mask. It was the lack of social distancing in the gym. It was the fact that he basically took a non-essential travel trip halfway across the world weeks before he was set to compete uh, with the Denver Nuggets here in the United States. You have to take into account all of the factors of what his behavior was, how he was presenting himself, how he was acting, but then also how he was being presented in public. Um, there, I, To me, there's just a higher burden if you are a celebrity or if you're a public figure, uh, you have to be held to a higher standard. And I think a lot of those choices that I'm describing were all questionable, regardless of what the number was in Serbia. And the bottom line is it clearly wasn't safe to be acting how they acted because there was a major outbreak, not only with him, but also with those other uh, professional athletes. Had they been following things as carefully as it sounds like you're following things in Denmark, I don't think all those guys test positive, Stefan. So you're actually holding yourself to a much higher standard than Jokic was holding himself to. Um, And I think, you know, an important piece of context here too, and I want to get this across to all of our global listeners, and this is very important, so stick with me word by word here. The United States right now is an absolute disaster, period. I'm going to say it again. The United States right now is an absolute disaster. We're hitting peak numbers in terms of total cases. We're seeing spikes in state after state after state. We're seeing local governments refusing to enact the best practices that Denmark has taken, uh, you know, for granted along the way. They don't want to roll things back. Nobody wants to have to be the guy who backed down and, and, you know, has to admit that the virus is winning. 
We have no coordinated national leadership on this, as Doc Rivers pointed out um, in his uh, press conference yesterday. We're hurting in a really, really big time way. And so some of this criticism uh, that was coming out from me, Stefan, a week or two ago, it's visceral, man. It's just knowing that we're in a real fight here and every bit helps and that we need allies and that we've got high-profile basketball players who, in some cases, have been amazing leaders on this issue going back to March, and we've got some others who are slacking a little bit and, and could maybe do better. And so that's that's all I would say. Keep in mind the Americans' perspective here uh, when you're over there in Denmark. You guys have life so good right now, and we're struggling, and there's no end in sight, and the frustration and the impatience uh, is really building over here. You know, I think that people are starting to look out ahead and saying, if we haven't made any real progress, if we're still hitting record levels after four or five months of this, how long are we going to be stuck uh, dealing with this as part of our day-to-day life? And right now, that timeline just gets longer and longer and longer, and it's very demoralizing. Uh, and in some cases, I think it leads to anger, uh, grief, frustration, all of the above. And that's what we're dealing with, Stefan. So be glad that you live in a country that actually knows what it's doing. All right. <laughs> on a lighter subject, Michael, uh, we're going to pivot straight to Vince Carter's legacy. <laughs> Jake, yes. Jake writes, how could you guys discuss half man, half amazing without really mentioning his time with Tracy McGrady in Toronto? That was possibly the greatest what if wing duo um, besides maybe Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill in Orlando. Plus, they were cousins. How cool is that? Tracy McGrady played three years in Toronto, two of them with Vince, but they never he never started more than half his games and only averaged about 15 points his final year. The Raptors gave him away to the Magic, and in doing so, they threw away the best years of Vince's career. Say that Tracy McGrady follows his trajectory and Vince falls into a role of a very exciting number two option. I guarantee that team beats Philly in the playoffs, and we look at both Vince and T-Mac's career completely differently. My second issue with you guys is that it's not fair to compare Vince to LeBron or Kobe or Wade. No one's putting Vince in the same conversation as those guys, but his career still is very impressive. How would he stack up compared to guys like Carmelo Anthony, Paul Pierce, or Sean Marion? Uh, Great questions from Jake. We actually had a follow-up from JC who also uh, brought up the Paul Pierce comparison um, and just noting that uh, he would maybe take Vince Carter over Paul Pierce. Uh, Blasphemy. Because he said, quote, uh, Pierce just had the chance to be joined by other Hall of Fame players, and he was probably a little bit more selfish, had a little bit more of that Mamba mentality. But from a talent and basketball perspective, I would still take Vince. So he's saying that Pierce maybe benefited from cir- circumstance that uh, that Carter didn't benefit from. So take it away, Michael. What do you think? Do, do we shortchange those Raptors teams and, and this possibility of T-Mac and Vince, and then how frustrated are you that someone's coming out of Celtics icon? Yeah, we should have mentioned the T-Mac partnership <laughs> at least once in the discussion. Uh, it's a really good point that Jake brings up, and it's a huge what if. Uh, I mean, I believe at the time, rookie deals were eligible for massive extensions after year three. So essentially, instead of paying T-Mac, the Raptors shipped him for a first round pick that wouldn't come to fruition until 2005, which is five years after the trade, which is just very comical. Um, The Raptors also, I mean, they could have just re-signed T-Mac. And then in the 99 draft, uh, they took Jonathan Bender with the fifth pick and then traded him to the Pacers for a 31-year-old Antonio Davis. Uh, They could have just taken Rip Hamilton or Andre Miller or or Sean Marion uh, in that draft, and then we would probably be discussing Vince Carter's legacy differently had they kind of naturally, organically grown the team through youth, but they didn't do that. Uh, So, yeah, it is a really interesting what if if they kept T-Mac and those two were kind of able to play together, maybe with Andre Miller throwing them lobs. It would have been incredible. Uh, So the Paul Pierce issue... Wait, before we get to Paul Pierce, can I just just double back maybe with like just a a slight splash of haterade? Um, Okay. Not really convinced that Vince Carter and T-Mac are going to do anything meaningful together. Got to say, when we're saying this guy is a big what if, and this other guy over here is a big what if, and if we put them together, it seems like, (laughs) to me, that's just a bigger what could have been, right? Um, Well, Why are they they necessarily going to be making each other better or fitting 
or taking a team to a higher level. I mean, of course, they're going to be posing like serious athleticism matchup concerns, but there's one basketball. Neither one of these guys is that true, you know, top five level player in the game at that point of their lives. I guess they could grow together a little bit. I just, I'm not sold, man. I don't know exactly what their ceiling looks like. Now, if you're saying, if the argument is, well, the East wasn't that great, maybe they're able to get to a conference finals or a finals together, you could possibly talk me into that. But like Vince Carter got to play with Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd's a heck of a lot better than Tracy McGrady. And how'd that work out? You know, I don't know. I just, I it sounds better on paper and it, it looked great during the 2000 dunk contest. That partnership never looked better than, uh, you know, T-Mac throwing Vince lobs and everything else. But I don't know, man. I, I don't really buy into this idea at all. Well, I see your, your, your points. And look, they're both, I guess, score first guys. And if T-Mac, I feel like T-Mac would have been kind of disgruntled eventually because, I mean, that guy, I think he was like 23 when he won his first scoring title uh, in Orlando. So... Uh, yeah, he would have been calling for the ball a lot more. There could have been, uh, they could have been ruffling each other's feathers in each other's lanes for sure. Um, I just think that the talent is undeniable. And so I'm not like guaranteeing they would have figured out a way to make it work, but at least letting them try probably should have been on the menu in Toronto instead of trading him for a 2005 first-round pick. It's ridiculous. There's no doubt. I mean, it goes back to the the troubles they had at that time period, though, of, of keeping guys happy, you know, and, and being a destination. Um, their entire franchise just... Uh, reputation has done a 180 you know i mean remember how quickly bosch wanted to get out of there even 10 years later Mm -hmm. uh just you know a tough time for them to organize i think some of those moves wind up looking worse in hindsight just because um you know they were operating from a negotiating standpoint just completely behind the eight ball all right give me your paul pierce breakdown or even compare him to like carmelo sean marion i mean where do you put vince on that group okay so pierce is just better um, I'm going to start at the top with just that. I mean, if you just want to make the statistical argument, regular season numbers, I went back and looked, very, very comparable for their entire careers. And Pierce, I, like, I think it's fair to just include all of the, the back half years where Pierce was a role player uh, in Washington, uh, in Brooklyn, uh, with the Clippers, which was just really grotesque. Uh, and obviously Vince was a role player with half the league. Um, but so the regular season numbers are pretty comparable. Pierce nearly averaged 20 per game uh, in his career. And as we said in the last episode, Vince averaged something like 16. Um, where Pierce separates himself is obviously the, the postseason where he played over twice as many minutes. He played in two finals. Uh, he won a finals MVP. He was named to two more All-NBA teams, two more All-Star games, played in two more All-Star games. Uh, Pierce just like got to the line a lot more. Uh, he was just a better clutch scorer in crunch time. That right elbow jumper was just very go-to. And where I think it, it narratively they, they kind of diverge is... Pierce had this whole contentious relationship with Boston and Boston's fans and Boston's organization. And there was, uh, he was very close to being traded a few times in his prime. And he kind of just weathered the storm there. And yes, he did get help with the KG trade and the Ray Allen trade. And of course, you cannot discount that. But Pierce also could have been traded himself, which is what happened with Vince, who basically stopped trying at various points during his Raptors tenure. So, you know, if Vince does not, uh, you know, if Vince does not uh, basically pack his own bags and get himself dealt and stays in Toronto and makes it work, I think we look at him a little bit differently. Um, Now, not all of that is on Vince and just like not all of Pierce's uh, Pierce's uh, commitment to staying in Boston is all on him. I mean, the, the obviously Boston's front office made those deals and swung those trades. But he I, I think just like the, the whole narrative of him staying and winning with one team and becoming an icon there, it, it just factors into his legacy in a way that Vince Vince just doesn't have that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the true what if. It's not the McGrady trade, it's the Paul Pierce trade. How much better off would we be if we didn't have to listen to that title team uh, tell us how great they were for the next freaking decade? Um, no, great great breakdown. I mean, I would have uh, Carter behind Pierce for sure, for all the reasons you mentioned. I would have him behind Carmelo. I think he and Carmelo actually share some of the same annoyances in my eyes in terms of you know, not breaking through quite to the same degree. But I think Carmelo had more playoff success than Carter did as a number one option, was clearly a better, more lethal, proven scorer for a longer period of time. No doubt, um, no doubt. And just more famous uh, and, and more decorated too. So I think that one's pretty easy. Sean Marion versus Vince Carter is actually a really interesting debate. It kind of comes down to what you look in a player. But I guess this is my point, Jake. If you're trying to stand up for your guy, Vince Carter, and your your bar has moved down to Sean Marion, um, that's not what we expected when he came into the NBA, right? I mean, we were expecting some Kobe comps, not Sean Marion comps. And uh, ultimately, I think that's why we felt a little bit uh, you know, left wanting by, by Vince's career. All right, a couple more to close this thing up, Michael. Our buddy Stavros checks in. And he says, I've got a theory that's worth floating by the pod because I know he occasionally likes to don the tinfoil hat. How does that feel, Michael? You're, you're getting a global reputation great, yeah. as a conspiracy <laughs> theorist. He writes, Michael, do you reckon that the Pelicans are playing the Jazz in the first game of the NBA restart because Utah had the juiciest quote-unquote offseason and there are some controversial storylines for the commentators to sink their teeth into? You've got Rudy's covid test you know shutting down the league and all the conversation about how you know he touched the microphones and the phones and everything else and then you also have this idea of you know a brewing rudy gobert versus donovan mitchell rift in utah where does donovan forgive him is it going to become donovan's team is it time to trade rudy all those kinds of questions so michael what do you think was it merely a coincidence that uh, we knew zion would be on opening night but in terms of the Utah side of this thing, you know, why do you think that the NBA put them on in that spot, this high-profile primetime first game back? What do you think? I have no idea. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I love a good conspiracy, but Utah's juicy uh, offseason, quote-unquote, was approximately 19 years ago. I don't think anyone – it's not really at like the forefront of anyone's mind right now. And no one's watching that game because they want to see if Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell are going to uh, get into a fist fight. I don't think so. Uh, you know, if you're trying to rope in casual fans, uh, I still think almost any other team is a better choice than the Utah Jazz. And I, I mean, I know that sounds really harsh, and I personally love watching the Utah Jazz play basketball. And and uh, Quinn Snyder's system is really enjoyable and aesthetically pleasing, but I would have preferred another like true undeniable superstar on the other end going up against Zion. Even like the Memphis Grizzlies with John Morant, that would have been a more... I don't know how many times those two teams have played during the regular season and whether or not that would be feasible, but I would prefer another star, guaranteed star. And I like Donovan, but he's just not there yet. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's just this idea of like, uh, you know, the, the last team out and the first team in. You know, if you're just trying to set the stakes for a whole bunch of audience, you know, audience members who are, oh, wait, the NBA is back, like the casual fans who are kind of checking in and you can start that game by saying, well, guys, you might remember back in March, the scary scene in Oklahoma City when the Utah Jazz had a positive test and the guy ran out on the court. You know, here we are. The NBA is back four months later. Does it just wind up kind of being the table setter? And like, it's almost a symbolic value of like the team that, uh, you know, was most directly impacted by this is still standing and here they are, you know, trying to compete for a title in Orlando. Is that sort of what the NBA was going for? Or are we reading way, way too much in all of this? Yeah, you're, you're, uh, you're going, peeling back layers that I didn't know existed, to be honest. I, I, it's the Utah Jazz. I mean, come on. It's like, like any other team, really, I would have thought would be more appropriate. Like, why aren't the Houston Rockets playing that game? James Harden is way more marketable than anybody on the Jazz. I, you just put another star there. Even the Blazers with Dane Lillard. I mean, come on. It's very simple. Yeah, I hear you. There's a lot of other good options. I do wonder if there is some, like, if that's what they were thinking, though, some symbolic idea of, like, 
we've got to pitch the resumption to the masses as kind of a return to normalcy, or we're trying to get back to business in, in some degree. And maybe the easiest way to do that is with the team that was under the most intense scrutiny in March, uh, you know, in, in terms of being at the middle of uh, the NBA's sure. pandemic response. It's possible. That's my conspiracy sure. theory, Stavros. Um, <laughs> I don't think that they're they're setting them up for a Rudy Gobert versus Donovan Mitchell civil war, um, you know, for the national television audience. I really don't think we're going to get whoever's doing that game, uh, probably TNT or Kevin Harlan is not going to be breaking down. Is it time to trade Rudy because of his COVID test? I don't think we're going to be getting that on broadcast number one. Sorry. No, I agree with you. I don't think we are either. <laughs> well, that's what happens. Stavros always goes to that galaxy brain territory. All right, last question. It's, it's way more lighthearted. Joel writes, my wife and I have always believed in the mantra, take nothing but photos, leave nothing but footprints. I'm so glad to hear, Joel. It's one of my guiding principles in life. He continues, what should I do when nature comes to my home? I was practicing my free throws while listening to your latest podcast, and I turned to my left and I saw a deer in my front yard. What should I have done? Keep shooting as it clearly wasn't scaring the deer away since it came over in the first place? Should I have stopped and watched it eat our plants? Should I have gone inside to give it space? I ended up doing uh, both of the first options, and my free throw percentage definitely dropped because I was distracted thinking about how any second the deer could just charge at me. I guess I can't handle the NBA pressure. And Michael, he included a photo of the deer for proof, just in case you were doubting the veracity of his story. There was a deer interrupting (laughs) Joel's free throw routine. So what would your advice be here to Joel? I mean, sounds like his confidence is really shaken by this outdoor interaction. Did he handle things properly? Would there have been a better option? And what should our other listeners do if they're worried about deers charging them in their front yards while they shoot free throws? Man, Joel, taking uh, Fear the Deer to a completely new level. I I really respect it. Um, Yeah, the deer was actually Ersan Ilyasova. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, yeah, I mean... It, 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 it would be pretty scary, I think, uh, shooting free throws with a wild animal close by. Um, was there any opportunity to just challenge the deer to one-on-one? Was that on the table? That might have been something to consider. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I, ben, you, I want you to take this one because I'm sure you have a very creative answer. Well, I'm just saying, look, if the mantra is take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints, trying to punk a deer at basketball doesn't really fit with that idea, Michael. I mean, come on. Like, you, you really want him to just beat up on some poor wildlife? Here's what I would say. I I included this question primarily because one time before I really got deep into this national park game, I was in uh, Antelope Island State Park uh, in Utah, and I was wandering off a trail, which you're definitely not supposed to do. I was not taking nothing but pictures. I was putting myself first, Michael, being selfish, trying to climb up to this little butte so I could take a beautiful panorama photo. And what did I find out? And when I turned around to walk back to my car, I found out that I had actually gone through some deer habitat and there was deers in between me and my car and one of them would not leave. There was no way for me to get back to my car with this deer in between me. Like Joel, I was scared. I did not know what to do. Um, I froze for about an hour in a stare-down match with the deer in the middle of blinding sun in Utah, there was no authorities to call. I didn't have service. Again, I was not where I was supposed to be. This was entirely my fault, Michael. Karma was hitting me hard on this one. Eventually, the deer moved on without incident. I tried to scramble around, kind of you know, flanking him, sort of like I had watched in some World War II documentaries in terms of how troops should be moving to uh, get around or you know, not necessarily directly engage with an enemy. Um, I was able to make it back to my car safely, but I never forgot that moment, that intense fear, knowing that you're somewhere you're not supposed to be staring down an animal that you're, you're not, you have no business messing with. So what I would say here, Joel, is first of all, you actually had nothing to fear because I got back to the car and I Googled it and, and deers are not really a threat to humans. And, and this one certainly was pretty small, not as big as the one who was in your front yard. Um, so you didn't necessarily need to be worried about getting charged in any manner. 
Um, I think that the best thing to do though, when you have these nature encounters is to break out your phone, take a bunch of pictures like you did, take some videos and just keep that camera rolling. Cause how many viral videos do we see on like Rex Chapman's Twitter account of just some random animal in someone's front yard doing something crazy. So Joel, the best opportunity here would have been for you to kind of maximize your potential Twitter, Twitter following by, you know, getting some just grade A wildlife content. Um, beyond that, you can't blame your free throw shooting on the deer, okay? Bottom line, like if you can't have an extra set of eyes watching you when you're shooting free throws, you're not where you need to be mentally. I would recommend a meditation app, um, some other kind of confidence building method to kind of get yourself refocused. And I would also consider maybe getting like a fathead version of a deer, you know, like those cardboard cutouts, Michael. I think he should actually set up some deer statues or deer cardboard cutouts in his front yard, kind of like a gnome garden, you know, uh, but with full-size deer so that he can work on his mental toughness, right? And, and you can just kind of like simulate, it's almost like a road crowd. He's playing in front of a road crowd of deers while he's trying to shoot his free throws to just get himself up to the next level in terms of self-improvement. <laughs> What do you think? The fathead idea is fascinating because I, in college, in my apartment, senior year, had a uh, life-size David Ortiz fathead, and it was him uh, in a batter's box swinging a baseball bat. And no matter what, like, it, it could have been three months into after I put it up, five months after I put it up. Literally every night when I would wake up and want to have to go to the bathroom or get a glass of water, it would scare the crap out of me. So that's just, uh, I can totally relate to trying to put the uh, the fat head up of the deer to uh, strengthen your mental toughness, but uh, it may not work. It did not work for me. Let me ask you this. Um, I have only one scenario I can remember of my life that compares to this. One time I was playing a high school basketball game and the cute girl showed up to sit courtside and I was just pressing like crazy. I mean, I was way too many turnovers, you know, four shots, not playing my typical game, just going, you know, above and beyond. It wasn't that I was, you know, choking like Joel in front of the deer, but it was, I was, you know, it was, it was getting into <laughs> my head for sure, right? Who is or what is um, the figure in your life, Michael, that could cause you to panic like Joel? So for example, if we did have a fat head of whatever person it might be, or if we did, because I'm thinking back to this high school event and I'm thinking like, if you had Tyra Banks, like the 1990, mid-90s version of Tyra Banks, see... Dude, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me just cut in. That was literally going to be my answer. Really? I'm not even, I'm not even, I'm not even kidding you. No. I had, yeah, uh, I could talk about Tyra Banks forever. She was, yeah, she was like my first crush growing up. I had the, uh, I had multiple Tyra Banks posters in my bedroom growing up. And, so, uh, let me ask you she this. She was literally going to be my answer to this question. That's perfect. Let me ask you this. I line up Tyra Banks, 1996 Tyra Banks... Um, in front of you while you're trying to shoot free throws or even just play in a five-on-five -five game. How do you respond, Michael? How does that go for you? Walk us through it. I'm melting. I'm, I'm a puddle. I have no legs. My legs are jello. I'm not able to... My brain is not even communicating to the rest of my body how to, how to move, how to jump, how to shoot. Michael, it, uh, it would be a total, total mess. Is it possible that you try to own it before the game and like walk over and introduce <laughs> yourself and be like, Hey Tara, I'm a big fan. Like, you know, I just, you know, I've always loved your work. You know, the, the daytime television show, some people didn't think it was that great. And, and I honestly thought you were the heir apparent to Oprah. Um, I mean, like, would you, how, how far would you lean into trying to carry yourself like these NBA guys do sometimes when celebrities sit courtside, you know, cause like if Rihanna shows up at your game, uh, you pretty much have to like, at least like nod or wave or do something if you're an NBA guy. Right. I mean, you have to, it, it she's the biggest star in the building. It's just kind of unavoidable. Um, or are you just going to pretend she's not there? I feel like pretending she's not there, Michael, is not going to work out. It's only going to make it worse. That that is, I mean, playing it cool and just completely being an idiot. That probably be my move. Uh, either that, <laughs> or I would go up to her and ask why she was breaking my heart by dating Chris Webber. Because during that stretch, I just I I couldn't even breathe. I, I did not understand that move at all. I was waiting for them to break up, and was like a sick person, just very excited when they did. 
Well, uh, I'm glad we've gone from deer straight to Tyra Banks, Joel. This is where Did you did not us. expect this conversation <laughs> to go here, but here we go. No, it's perfect. It's fantastic. It's great insight into the wild mind of Michael Pina, the tinfoil hat enthusiast. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. But guys, keep those emails coming. Open Floor Mail at gmail.com. Open Floor Mail at gmail.com. Remember, teams are headed to Orlando next week. So there's going to be an even a more increase of media coverage. And, uh, you know, just uh, the next stage of the NBA's plan will be uh, front and center uh, as we go forward there. Michael, all of our uh, listeners can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When they find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word as we try to cover this nba return step by step and blow by blow michael's on instagram and twitter at michael v as in victor pina i'm on instagram at ben.golver on twitter at ben golver check me out on the washington post Uh, i've got stories about the mental reframing by the contenders that we talked about earlier the basketball tournament bubble in ohio that's going on right now and all sorts of other good stuff WashingtonPost.com slash sports. All right, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk to you, Ben. Hey, yeah.